So this is one of the only first times I've ever been to a seminar in this room where the projector has worked on the first go. There have been people standing in chairs pointing at it. Um, having said that. There we go. Okay. So we're going to go through in our two-headed monster way, where we're going to talk, basically the structure of the talk is as follows. I'll start out by talking a little bit about the phenomenon of Somali piracy and what the conventional wisdom is about how to fix this problem. And then we're going to turn to Anya because what we've discovered using some quantitative analysis is that the conventional wisdom about what causes piracy and therefore what we ought to do to stop piracy is largely incorrect. And so the data actually has come up with three things that we find quite surprising, and we're going to go through those three surprises. Once Anya's finished discussing the data, I'm going to discuss again what is the current policy thinking and how likely is this current policy thinking going to work given what we know about the data about piracy. And also given what we know, what solutions about piracy might work better than some of the ones which are currently on the table. So obviously piracy has risen exponentially off the Horn of Africa. This is not one of these cases where it happens to be in the media all the time, but it's been lurking for a long time. It has been lurking as a small problem, but not anywhere near this scale that we see today. And those are just some useful statistics, but I think the most important one is by the end of 2009, they were predicting that that number of 143 would actually go up to about 360. And I haven't checked the data to see how many attacks there were, but attacks doubled alone between 2007 and 2008. And obviously, if the 2009 numbers are right, they will have nearly tripled. So it's a very, very, very lucrative business. Total ransom per hijack is estimated at between $500,000 and a million dollars, which works out to about $10,000 per pirate, which when you consider that the estimated per capita GDP in Somalia is $291, obviously it's good business to be in if you are an otherwise unemployed young Somali, which constitutes most young Somalis. This has caught people's imagination partly because people, I think, always find pirates interesting and cool, but partly because it has both major security implications and major commercial implications. The commercial implications are obvious. This, this degree of disruption of shipping might um, indeed be very damaging to the commercial sector. But more importantly, people worry a lot, especially regionally, about where this is, whether or not we're going to see future links between absence of security in Somalia and a relationship between piracy and terrorism, in particular piracy and maritime terrorism, and links between Islamic extremist groups and these pirate groups. Could you use this money to finance either terrorism or Islamic extremism? At the moment, there's actually very little evidence of that, but it, it's something that people see the writing on the wall a little bit and worry about happening. So why do we see piracy in Somalia? Well, one of the answers is that it's simply an extremely, extremely fragile state. Um, there's a lot of fairly devastating statistics there about the nature of the Somali economy. One of the things which has been fun for the two of us is actually trying to get any data at all about the Somali economy because the state is so fragile that there is very little out there. It's important to emphasize that even though there's no central government and Somalia is often referred to as the quintessential failed state, it is not a state without governance. There is quite a lot of local governance which comes in different forms, either from warlords or from mosques or from community groupings. Piracy is a very opportunistic business, and when you have a country with this level of poverty, inevitably what you're going to have is people who are looking for 
looking for work, it's a very easy thing to do. It's a very, very low entry cost business. It tends to start out very small people with very small boats and small arms, which are very easily obtainable in Somalia, and you don't need much else. Therefore, the return is very high. <clears throat> and for the moment, it seems to be almost entirely apolitical. So even when pirates do things like capture big Ukrainian ships carrying hundreds of tanks, they don't do anything with them. And there are some, there are some interesting economic reasons for that, but there's also some interesting practical reasons for that. This is not a political business. They're in it to make money for the moment. So <clears throat> to show you how low tech it is, <clears throat> here we have a fearsome Somali pirate crew. Um, and they're largely, one of the things which is important to realize here is that they are largely indistinguishable from fishermen. And I'm going to come to that in a second. But when they go out in these small boats, you don't know what you, whether or not you're dealing with a pirate crew or a fishing crew. So on the bottom of this slide, you'll see the instance of piracy between 2000 and 2009 with attempts and successes. So that'll give you a sense of how much this problem has actually increased. Another major reason for why this, we see this problem in Somalia is obviously geographic opportunity. It's a relatively narrow shipping area with lots and lots and lots of shipping going through. And not only lots of shipping, but very high value shipping. If you have a valuable cargo, this is the way you want to ship it, because it's the fastest way <laughs> around. Um, it's a ransom business. And again, this is important, because other types of piracy in the international community at the moment are stealing businesses. So you hijack a ship, you take the cargo, you sell the cargo. This is not that they don't do anything with the cargo. They just keep the ship somewhere. They keep the sailors somewhere and then they try and get ransoms paid. Um, there's no question that the business has evolved and that success seems to breed success, and I'm just gonna talk about that a little bit more. They, they've gotten faster boats, they get better weaponry, they're starting to use motherships, which two or three years ago they didn't appear to be doing, and by motherships we mean a big ship that takes the pirates out in their small dinghies, lets the pirates go, they go do their thing, and then they come back. That means they can cover wider territory, they can get out into the open sea more, which is again something that Anya's gonna be talking about. Um, the ransoms have also increased in value over time, so it's become more and more lucrative as time has gone on. So what's the conventional wisdom about piracy? Well, the conventional wisdom about piracy is we are not going to solve, yep. So just one question, by attempt, you mean they try to hijack the ship and they fail, rather than they hijacked it and got no money for it? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they didn't get further than the, the, the side of the boat. Yes, yes. Okay. yeah. They didn't get the, the successes where they actually got a ransom at the end. The, the, okay. the, the attempts are anything getting on board and being chased off at that point, or, and or not even getting on board at all. In so far as we can tell, most people pay up. There are very few instances of ransoms not getting paid. In so far as we can tell, it's obviously hard to, to find it for sure, but it seems as though most ransoms get paid. So the conventional wisdom about piracy is this is a land problem and not a sea problem. That the only way you're going to solve this problem is to improve stability in Somalia. Establish a minimum degree of law and order. And I'll leave Anya to, to develop this more, but one of the things that we found is that stability seems to be correlated with an increase in piracy. So actually stability is quite good if you're a pirate, you can get out and you can do more pirating more effectively. And we'll talk about some of the reasons we speculate for that and some of the data we have for that point now. So what's happening at the moment? 
what, what has the international community decided to do about this? There are three multinational naval initiatives operating in the area. There's a NATO counter-piracy force. There's an EU counter-piracy force called Operation Atalanta. And there's a US-led task force called Joint Task Force 151, which basically includes a number of nations who are not members of either the EU or NATO. They are there partly because of some Security Council resolutions, which are surprisingly robust about what they ought to be allowed to do. And that's important, and I'll come back to that later. And um, international law is obviously quite specific about piracy. Um, those of you who know about it, it's considered to be one of these quintessential crimes in international law that anyone can deal with. It's a crime of universal jurisdiction. Um, what they are mainly doing, these Navy ships, is providing escorts for World Food Program ships bringing aid into Somalia. They're providing security patrols, and they provide assistance for ships once under attack. So they're mainly there as a deterrent force. What they are not there to do is to sail around, seek out pirates, and chase them back to shore or engage them. And that's, again, quite important. Actual rescues seem to be quite rare. They don't seem to intercept action as it's going on very much. And that's probably because, although I said this is a very narrow seaway, it's much bigger than you would think that it is. And the pirates are very small, and they quite easily seem to be able to evade the naval ships. They're escorting some convoys through the Gulf of Aden area, and again, this is something we're going to be talking about a little bit later on. So funnily enough, despite the fact that everyone says this is a land-based problem, this is not a land-based solution <coughs> to what everybody thinks is a land-based problem. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons for that later. And now I'm going to turn to Anya to talk about what the data tells us about small piracy. Well, we thought this was a perfect uh, project for two people with different approaches to get together because uh, for, for once this is a problem where we could probably find uh, some, some proxies, a model of, of, of what is driving piracy off the coast of, of Somalia. And uh, we started off with a very large set of explanatory variables, but we tested it down um, to uh, this set of variables that I'm going to talk about today. So how risky is it um, to be involved in piracy. Um, obviously, there's a risk of drowning if you go out into the open seas with uh, boats like Sarah's just uh, shown you. Um, and then there is the risk of being engaged uh, by the navies that are out there. Um, to what extent that is a deterrent is a question. Um, if you get arrested by the uh, Western uh, naval forces, uh, you basically put your hands up, you get arrested, you get a medical, you get some food, you get a cup of tea, um, you get asked some questions, and then they make sure that your boat is seaworthy, that it's got enough food, that there's enough fuel, that there's enough water to get you back home. So the question is, how risky is that? If you're actually caught um, in the act of piracy, then you might be arrested, uh, detained, um, in the best case taken to America or Holland for two years in prison, followed by political asylum, joining the Somali diaspora. Again, might be quite attractive. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, there's been a reaction to that, and uh, now pirates get sent to Kenya for trial, which they don't really like. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> they, they, when, when they're told that they're going to Kenya, then you get very... Um, upset reaction from them. But, but generally everyone plays by the rules of the game. Um, if you're attacked as a crew, you don't fight back. 
um, you let the ship be entered and nobody gets hurt. You have two months in Somalia while you wait for the ransom to be paid. Similarly, pirates, when they get picked up, they throw their piracy gear over, overboard, pretend to be fishermen and everything. No, again, nobody gets hurt. Unlike my other data sets, this is quite civilised. Then I'm looking at resources, and clearly there is a, is, is a time pattern to this, and uh, we think this is a business where the profits get uh, ploughed back. Then I'm looking for indicators of poverty, which might be driving people off the land and into the sea. And then finally, we're going to look a little bit at the question of institutional quality in Somalia um, to see how that is linked to piracy. I'm taking my data set from the International Maritime Bureau, which publishes annual piracy reports, the world's quarterly ones. I've got 2000 to 2009. It's not a great data set. Um, but it's the best I can find for piracy. There are two problems with it. The first one is a problem of under-reporting. They're all self-reported, so you decide as a captain whether you want to report that there has been an attack in the first place. If there has been an attack, um, that might reflect, reflect badly on you. So for that reason, there's a stigma effect that, that you might not want to say that you have been attacked. If they've actually been on board, um, then your ship gets taken into harbour, the police start a lengthy forensic investigation, which might take months. Um, if you're worried about loss of hire, then that's something they might want to avoid as well. So we think, at least in the initial period, there's a lot of under-reporting. Then in the next period, we think there might be over-reporting, because everyone is trying to help with the International Naval Forces effort. And we get attempted uh, hijackings, which basically is somebody saying, we spotted someone on our radar <coughs> two, three nautical miles away, and they looked a bit like pirates. Well, fishermen look a lot like pirates, and pirates look a lot like fishermen. So I think some of these reported attacks are probably, um, they're not necessarily true pirate attacks. If you get a super tanker going through a fish, fish breeding ground, uh, churning up the water, aerating it, that's a perfect place to go fishing in the wake of a big super tanker. Um, if pirates look like fishermen, again, you might think over-reporting. So what we've done is we've coded attempts, which is anything that doesn't result in a successful hijacking. So we've taken any report that there was. Um, the successes are the ones where the boat gets taken away and eventually ransomed. And then we've got the disruption ones, which are, are a subgroup of the attempts um, where the attempt was interrupted by the arrival of some naval um, force, either by helicopter, just chasing them off. As Sarah said, rescues are rare. Uh, the navies don't get involved. Once a boat is in the hands of the pirates, nobody shoots anymore. They, they, they go quietly back to Somalia and the ransom process starts. Nobody wants anyone to get hurt in this game. And the ransoms that have been paid um, are so much lower than the, law, uh, than, 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 the, than the cargo, the value of the cargo and the hull, that it's not worth 
interfering with them once they're on board. I've also split the sample into the Gulf of Aden and the Indian Ocean because while they're all Somali pirates, we think there might be something quite different about these two areas. We know very little about Somalia um, in terms of its economy. Um, the IMF hasn't collected any data for years and years. Every year they just say the situation is such that we will know almost nothing uh, about Somalia, so we're not providing data, we're not collecting data. 65% of the economy, however, is agriculture and rainwater-fed agriculture. So we thought if we know something about rainfall, perhaps we know something about poverty in Somalia. And I got in touch with this agency, Somalian Water and Land Information Management Agency, and said, can you send me anything that you've got in terms of rainfall data? And uh, they did very kindly. And for the period I was interested in, there are only two stations, two weather stations, that continuously posted rainfall data. Everything else was really hit and miss, maybe a month or ten months' worth of data, and then absence of data, stations coming in, stations being closed out. And the rainfall the weather station technology is basically situating a bucket in your garden and checking whether there's water in it. I mean, it's a little bit more than that, but uh, it's very low tech. Um, these are really well resourced. Um, they've got United Nations and uh, European Union um, uh, funding. So I think in the Somali circumstances, getting a contract with Swollen is probably the best possible thing that could happen to you. So if you get a contract like that, why aren't you delivering? So I said to her, why aren't they delivering? And they said, well, simply, generally, because um, they can't get out of the door. They've left the house, or it's too dangerous to go out and find their bucket and see whether there's water in it. So what we've done is we've used the patchy rainfall data. Rather than looking for rainfall on most of these, we're just looking for presence or absence of reporting. And uh, we've constructed, well, I've constructed uh, two uh, data series from that. Um, the aim of the organisation is to try and uh, get back to the pre-war weather network. They want to have the old 54 stations running again. And this is what they've managed to do over time. So they've contracted this number of stations. However, then there's also been a number of stations which just simply haven't reported. So they think it's it is possible to contract with them, yet for some reason they cannot report the data. So we're using the contracted station as an indicator of how good contracting is, how many people you think is possible to get into a contract with, and they might deliver. And this as an indicator of civil violence, um, the number of people who, through no fault of their own, cannot so, deliver. So they are contracted, but they're not reporting. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's not because of corruption or just because they're not interested or... We don't know, but what, from, from the excuse they give yeah. is that they couldn't get to them. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I don't know. I can I, I can ask that. So, I mean, this is poor. We know it's we know it's a poor proxy. So, what we thought, well, do we know anything else about the Somali economy that we can see whether this is related to it in some sensible way? So, what we do have with some interruptions again is the uh, exchange rate number of Somali shillings per US dollar um, traded in Mogadishu, um, a monthly average exchange rate. So there, there are only four or so missing observations which I've interpolated. And so with the contracting, the um, Yeah, with the, with the contracting, the, 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 the depreciation of the um, exchange rate slows down. Okay. Sorry, I'm confused about this. Now, the other thing we know about the, um, the, the, the Somali economy is how many commodities are being traded um, in regional centers at any point in time. Again, we have a data set of um, prices for a number of commodities um, that are being traded. And I'm counting the total number of commodities that are being traded. I'm not interested in the price. I'm just interested whether there is a market. And Looking at that, with the contracting, with the ability to contract and solemn, the number of commodities um, that are being traded goes up. Whereas the, with the non-reporting stations, we see an interruption um, in the markets. Was there a question? Sorry, I was just going to ask what kind of commodities we're talking about. Um, sorghum, maize, diesel, US dollars. Um, sugar, there are about 15 that are being traded uh, that, that, that could possibly be traded they're, they're tracking 15 in 18 regional markets but sometimes entire markets disappear, so there is no trading for an entire month in maize or sorghum or, or whatever and sometimes you know that they're tracking 15 commodities but only 5 or 6 are available so we assume again that there is a problem with trading um, if the camel lady or the goat lady or the sorghum lady just just just, just didn't, didn't didn't appear. But what, what are the numbers? I mean, what's the operation you're doing here? I'm 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 looking at the uh, it's, it's just a, just an OLS regression. Um, the dependent variable here is the, the, the percentage or the, the, the proportion of the total commodities that are actually being tracked, that are being traded. And uh, the, the exchange rate. I'm slightly confused about that. So 
So not a great, but, uh, not, 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 not a great um, proxy, probably, but at least it seems to be saying something. The other thing that it does seem to be correlated with is this period here when there was uh, major disruption with the United Islamic Councils taking over various um, various coastal um, coastal harbors such as Ail and Khader, um, where the pirates have been traditionally um, quite strong territorial disputes with the United Islamic Councils taking over these uh, coastal provinces and then being driven off again. So a dummy of this period would be used um, also as an alternative indicator of, um, of, of instability. So now to the pirates. Um, got monthly analysis 2002 to 2009. I don't have a very nice distribution. Um, it doesn't look like a normal distribution of my dependent variable. Um, I've logged it, so contracted the uh, distribution because I think there might be significant over-reporting um, on these latter, on the, on the, on the latter um, observations. I use OLS, I use a Tobit, saying, okay, there is obviously this concentration of, of zeros where, where there isn't a single incident. Um, with the Tobit, I'm assuming that the same process drives whether people are doing pirating in a particular month, and if they do, how many pirate attacks there are. And then I've got some count variable models as well, where I say, okay, it is a count variable. Again, it doesn't look like a normal distribution for count models, but um, I've tried these two. And my first result really is that it doesn't seem to matter what type of method I use. Tobit, Poisson, negative, binomial, um, LLS. Qualitatively, I get the same results. Same. Uh, the coefficients are not directly comparable because this is logged and this is, this is the raw count data. But basically, methodology doesn't seem to matter too much. But if anyone knows the perfect way to do it, I'd rather do it the perfect way. So the first result is that resources and ransoms are absolutely key to explaining the evolution of piracy in Somalia. And I get this result that uh, how much piracy and how much pirating equipment there has been in the previous period is, uh, is a highly significant predictor of, of future piracy. Not so clear about an encouragement effect from a previous success, but interestingly a success four periods ago then gives me a lot of predictive power about what's happening in the future. Why four periods ago? Why like four times? Usually it takes about two months for the ransom to come through and then another two months for the equipment to arrive, and then they go out pirating. So the business reinvests its profits. Um, I've got some more evidence on the fact that the um, piracy lagged by two periods greatly increases the number of goods on offer in coastal towns. So after two periods, the money comes in. After four periods, the kit arrives and they go out again. So then we had these three unexpected 
results. Um, the first one rather contradicts our idea that piracy thrives on lawlessness. Um, in fact, we find that pirates benefit from contracting and there is a clear disbenefit from political instability. So we find that while there is no government, well, our variable for government or not, which is zero throughout, um, we do have governance, local governance, and pirates benefit from this ability to contract. What do they need contracts for? Well, they need to contract to keep the hostages safe. They need contracts to keep the hostages fed, etc. So they apparently benefit from an ability to do business within country. And the territorial disputes they really don't like, um, either the UIC period um, or, um, or our other proxy. So quite the opposite of what the, the, the received wisdom is. Because if you want to improve governance in Somalia, you have to do a piecemeal. You can't plop Swiss-style governance onto Somalia. Um, what the, hope, the best you could hope for is a partial improvement in governance to start with. Um, and that might actually increase rather than reduce piracy. If you want to um, turn Somalia into a strong state, then you might find you get quite a lot of opposition from local leaders which um, do participate in the um, distribution of ransom. So there's some quite good evidence for that. How do you relate the numbers? What's the 0.008? Well, because I'm not sure about the... That is how many of the 54 stations of the pre-war network has been resurrected. I'm, I'm not really focusing on, on, on the number because, as I said, I'm not really sure about the estimation methodology. My coefficients might be biased. So what I'm looking for is the significance level and the sign mostly. It's not significant, is it? Right, okay. The error must be misprinted. But it's probably one. Sorry, I will check you. Anyway, it is significant. I must have must 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 be a typo. Um, yeah. So the second thing that we thought was odd was that while we sort of thought of it as these individual entrepreneurs going to sea, we think there might be somebody who was coordinating the thing. Um, what gives us this idea is the result that with added incidents in Aden, we then get additional piracy in the open seas. So we should explain, actually, that the pirate incidents start off in the Gulf of Aden primarily, yeah. and then as the EU as the presence of the EU and the other naval operations has increased, the piracy is moving out into the open sea. Yeah. And there are a number of potential explanations for this, yeah. but um, 
that's one of the things that we've yeah. been looking at is why is the piracy moving out to the open sea? Why isn't it sticking around the Gulf of Aden? So we think, well, the open seas are probably less profitable and much more dangerous to hunt around in. You need different equipment, you need more advanced equipment. So we think that somebody says, you can't hunt on my patch. Otherwise, you wouldn't necessarily see people moving out to the open seas. The other thing that's really interesting, and this was a complete surprise, is that when the Navy hunts, the, 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 the Navy disrupts piracy attacks, we see a reduction in the incidence in the Indian Ocean. Almost all of the disruptions take place in Aden. Yeah, so the disruption, the Navy is present in the Gulf of Aden, but I've been a reduction in the open seas piracy when there is a disruption in Aden. So that rather suggests that if there is an arrest, that pirate crews move out of the open seas and into Aden, that there has been a vacancy created in Aden which is taken up by pirates from the open seas. And our explanation for that is that there is somebody who's coordinating this business. Yeah? Somebody who limits the access for new entrants in Aden. Somebody who's got an idea how many pirates he wants to be busy in Aden, possibly governed by how much capacity he or she has for negotiating ransoms and keeping hostages safe, etc. If you want to be a freelance pirate, then you go out into the open sea. If you do well in the open sea, you get promoted to the A-team in Aden, if there is a vacancy. I want to play this, see, see what you think about it. But in order to go to the open sea, you need to have equipment. Anything can be hired. Yeah. You don't have to have anything. There's a boat hire in Mogadishu. <laughs> but it's more risky. Hmm? It's riskier, isn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's, it's not where you want to be, I think. Um, you, you want to be in... in and actually, I think the next bit will show you part of the reason why you really don't want to be in the open sea, why you want to yeah. stick with yeah. um, So, the next surprise was our naval intervention variable. The presence of the Navy is obviously in response to piracy, so the mere presence of it or absence of it we can't use as, as, as a variable. But what we have used is this transit corridor which has been put in in February 2009 where all ships have been advised to go in this particular lane. There was a previous version of it, but since February 2009 this has been the recommended route. I showed you the model for total piracy and <coughs> the model for piracy in Aden says exactly the same. There is no effect at all. There is no statistically significant effect from this transit corridor dummy. However, there is a statistically significant effect of the transit corridor in Aden on piracy out in the open seas. And that is really odd. You would have thought 
that there was an effect from it in Aden, where it's actually being implemented. So what's the uh, explanation? Well, the first explanation that we come up with is the idea that if you fortify a particular zone, like the green zone in Baghdad, then terrorists will substitute for a less well-protected area and go and hit the mosques and markets around the green zone. So the classic result in the terrorism literature that any additional pirates um, go for the soft targets in the open seas instead of trying to do the difficult thing um, in the Gulf of Aden, attacking this really well-protected zone. There is... However, another explanation that we want to run by you, and that would be that there has actually been a positive effect on pirates from the transit corridor. That pirates in Aden have become suddenly more efficient, that whoever is protecting his patch says, actually, we can do our pirating in Aden with quite a lot fewer crews, so why don't you all go out into the open seas? I will not have these extra crews spoiling my patch in aim. And that would give you the same pattern of attacks. You can do the same amount of pirating with fewer boats and more effect, uh, more attacks in the open seas where the surplus crews have moved. So why what we see is such an efficiency shock on pirates from the transit corridor? Um, as Sarah said, it's a narrow shipping lane, but it's not that narrow. It's, uh, it's wider than the Baltic Sea. And there are about 50 ships a day, just over 50 ships a day, that are passing uh, through this area. And I'm checking, but as far as I can see, there's no evidence for pirates using radar. So they're on very low boats. They can't see very far. I think the maximum that I might be able to see is 10 to 15 miles on a night. And they can't hack around at great speed because that would make them look rather like pirates, not like fishing birds. And they don't have much money for fuel either. So I think pirates used to spend quite a long time looking for suitable targets homing in and seeing whether it was any good then moving off again. And we have interesting evidence for this because pirates often, out of desperation, attack things that they shouldn't attack, like naval vessels. Um, so, so they've been out for a while. We have yes. these, these pirates attacking things which are clearly not good pirate targets. Yeah. <laughs> what about this transit corridor? Well, the transit corridor has been implemented because it helps the navies to get to the aid, to come to the aid of ships under attack. Yeah? That's what they're supposed to be doing. That's what exactly the, the, the Navy's target. Um, however, it also takes the guesswork out of where you're going to find a ship. They're going to be in the transit corridor. So if the first effect dominates, you're fine. If the second effect dominates, then the policy is quite counterproductive. Um, this is a picture of the Gulf of Aden and the attacks that we saw in 2007. And these are the attacks in 2009. 
And um, Anya's already alluded to this, but this is a very, actually, this is a business where nobody even really seems to get hurt very much. And we have all of these stories of Ale, which is one of the pirate places, apparently has a series of restaurants which are designated to cater for non-Somali tastes. And they are only there because the pirates take their hostages to eat at them. So this is not exactly bloodthirsty. And the question is, if you start altering these incentives, you also alter the incentives for violence. And that is not a, not a particularly good outcome. <coughs> then there's a question of, is the solution to the pirate problem that we just start shooting them up? And that really what we need to be is a lot more forceful and a lot more violent. And so you can do this in a couple of different ways. Allow greater use of force by navies at sea. Um, allow pursuit onto land or encourage pursuit onto land because it seems like from the Security Council resolutions that it might already be allowed. Another option would be arming commercial shipping. And these are some of the apparent lessons drawn from Straits of Malacca piracy. The problem is Straits of Malacca piracy is quite different. And Straits of Malacca piracy was about the stealing of cargo. So people had very little incentive to keep the crew alive because they were just stealing the cargo. And therefore, crews did get killed a lot. And a more robust solution seemed to be the option. Also, the states are very different in that part of the world, and they were able to implement that solution in a different kind of way. A lot of the problems about using violence against pirates, as I've said, are the human rights legal concerns about distinguishing between pirates and fishermen. Arming commercial shipping has a number of problems. For starters, it's very expensive. Even though the number of attacks has increased a lot, it's still a very small percentage of overall shipping. And it doesn't make economic sense to arm every single ship. There are legal implications to doing so. And as one of the risk management guys that Anya interviewed pointed out, it's like arming the bank teller at HSBC with a handgun and then sitting her on an, a pile of explosives. Because a lot of these ships, if you're an oil tanker, <laughs> your incentive for defending your ship against people who have rocket-propelled grenade launchers is very, very low. So it doesn't necessarily make much sense. <clears throat> There is obviously extreme international aversion to any kind of land-based operation in Somalia because of the history of land-based operations in Somalia and also because of current experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is not something that anyone is going to sign up for very lightly. There is an idea that you could co-opt Coast Guards, co-opt the pirates into some sort of Coast Guard system, make them your own. The incentives of this might be tricky as well. Um, if there is a Mr. Big or Mr. Biggs, you would have to get them on side. You'd have to get most of the pirates to do it. And the economic incentives would have to be pretty good because it's pretty good to be a pirate as it is now. Finally, the big policy solution that we talked about at the beginning, the conventional wisdom one, is what do we do? We make Somalia stable. And navies are oddly enthusiastic about this option. <laughs> and we've, we have done and we will be continuing to do a bunch of interviews with navies about this. And it's part of... What makes this problem very interesting and very intractable is the incentive for navies to do something in Somalia is extremely high. Navies talk a lot now about the problem of sea blindness. Iraq and Afghanistan get all the attention. That's where the important stuff is happening. They have to be seen to be doing something important, which isn't just moving troops from point A to point B. This seems to be the perfect thing to do. And not only is it the perfect thing to do, if you define your success as we'll protect the shipping, but really it's a land problem, then your measure of success is remarkably low, right? All you have to do is disrupt it a little bit. And you've done what you said you were going to do. And you can push the problem off onto somebody else. You can say, we can do a little bit to help, but to solve the problem, 
there's nothing we can do about it. Understandably, they perceive themselves to be very successful because they are doing exactly what they said they were going to do. The other thing is that the unfortunate part about this is that, well, on the one hand, it really highlights what navies are capable of and combats the problem of sea blindness. If in the UK you're arguing to the government that you need a lot of money for Trident and fancy aircraft carriers, the unfortunate part about counter-piracy is you don't need any of that stuff for counter-piracy. What you need is very small and very low tech. So when we, also, when we talk about increasing stability, as Anya said, one of the things that our research shows is that incremental increases in stability are unlikely to be much help at all. In fact, they may make the problem worse. Moreover, what would a really stable Somali state look like? And a lot of people say it might be an Islamic extremist state, which is the last thing anybody wants. So to build the kind of stability in Somalia that you would need to prevent the pirate problem, and what I mean by that kind of stability is we hypothesize that what you would need is, at the moment, pirates only have to worry about having their hostages taken by other pirates. And they obviously have some sort of system of sorting this out. But if they're worried about the state taking away their hostages successfully, then they've got a problem. Then you have disruption. To get a state with that degree of capability is either a long way off, or it's not the sort of state that we necessarily wish to see. So that's one of the big lessons that we've drawn from this. And again. Just highlight this really quickly before we take questions. There are a series of very odd incentives operating with Somali piracy, which I think make it very, very intractable and very unlikely to be solved. First of all, it's bloodlessness. Nobody is dying here. This is just about money. And it seems to work quite well, and the money exchanges hands quite nicely. Pirates are very likely to resist attempts at change. Also, this is not a type of organized crime which is parasitic on the local community in any way. In fact, it seems to benefit the local community quite heavily by bringing in money. And the victims are all external. So there's no pressure coming here from regular Somalis to stop the pirate menace when they all benefit from it. Um, the bloodlessness also, I think, actually, the Chandler case, which is horrible, it's been all over the news. This is the British couple whose yacht, who were taken in their yacht. There's no reason. It's pretty clear that no one's going to pay a ransom for those people, and yet they're still alive. And we would not have seen that in the Straits of Malacca piracy cases that were especially prevalent in the 1990s, where their yacht would have been taken and they would have been killed, and that would have been the end of the story, and they wouldn't be on the news now. So it is a very different type of enterprise. There's no real enthusiasm for the use of violence by the West, and the navies appear to like the current approach quite a lot. So I think that combination of slightly odd incentives means that it's going to be difficult to um, come up with good policy solutions to end this problem. So that takes us to the end that we want to, more chance of quarters. <laughs> that takes us largely to the end of what we wanted to talk about. We'd love to hear your ideas and your questions, because this is a working paper still. So. Thank you very much.